Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown with with me, Kim Fitzgerald. My guest today is Anne Hardley. Hi Anne Hard, how's things? Hi, how are you? I'm okay, plodding on. You coping alright with this kind of global pandemic? Uh, I think so. I'm into week seven of lockdown now because I was I was ill before this all kind of kicked off. So had to self-isolate and all that jazz. So um, yeah, I'm feeling it a little bit this week. I've got to be honest. Feel like I need time out from time out. Yeah, I think <laughs> a lot of people feeling like they kind of need a bit of a break from it. But <laughs> yeah. do you do you another thing? Do you just go keep going because we don't know how long this is going to go on for? Just got to breathe, haven't you? You know, it's um, mm. it's just something that you're completely out of control of, and um, I just think it's a really good lesson of having to live in the moment and what that means, rather than yes. worrying about what's to come or what's been. You know, what is it to just be? That's a really good point, actually. Just kind of living now um, yeah. and not thinking about the future or the past. Um, but I wanted to start for today's podcast at the very beginning. So for you, how did you first get interested in the arts? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. Let me try and uh, think right back. The first production I ever remember seeing was The Wizard of Oz. My father was a teacher, uh, retired about four or five years ago. And he played the Tin Man in um, their school production right. when he was a teacher of Wizard of Oz. And I remember this one, I got such a vivid memory of it. And it was in the 80s, early 80s, when there was a big snowstorm. So something like 82, and that, it was a big blizzard. Um, and there's the scene in the Wizard of Oz where this Tin Man is stuck. Do you remember it? Right. sometimes don't you that my teachers in junior school 
um, were majorly into the arts um, and would put us up for all the Eistedd Awards, the Carnac Dolls and all the solo yeah. competitions. And it was the same when I uh, kind of migrated through to Ysgol Acumen, which is now Ysgol Gyfyn Cwmhonda. And again, just steeped in the era of Eistedd Awards. Yes. So that's really where the love of it came from. And were you involved with that in school? Did you perform in... Estevrods and things like that. Did all the Estevrods, so singing was my And do your parents speak Welsh? Yes. Right. Yeah, so my parents are from West Wales. My dad's from a place called Tumble, and my mum okay. She was born in Middleton Hall, which is in. Uh, most people who know about uh, botanical gardens in in Wales. Yes. Yes. So she was born in the big house there. So it was one of the families who kind of tended to the land there. So the history of my family is West Wales. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm a from the girl, born and bred, but my roots are very firmly um, done west. And okay. yeah. uh, you trained at the Royal Welsh College um, with music and drama. Um, what skills did you kind of gain through that course? Um, I think following on from um, the fact that I came through Welsh medium education, I, you know, I wasn't saturated in in anything beyond the Saunders Lewis and you know the the Welsh dramatists of of the time so when it came to Shakespeare and any other theatre piece outside of Wales I would have absolutely no idea so I remember when I auditioned for Welsh College Music and Drama I auditioned with a Shakespeare piece and a Welsh language piece and got in on that but that that first year the me being saturated in um, playwrights that I had never even heard of um, so I think that was, you know, that's a skill in itself of, of kind of looking beyond culturally what you know. And I think that's still true. You know, we, we have to remember that, I think, when we step into the professional world. And, and when I receive, you know, I, I lecture a lot now, and when I receive um, um, students, a lot, a lot of students have only ever been involved in Welsh language work and Welsh language production. Mm. So, you know, it's baby steps and tentative steps steps to look beyond that so I think that was one skill I definitely learned how to how to research beyond what I already know um, but I, I learned to drink <laughs> absolutely <laughs> that's what uni for isn't it I learned, I, I, <laughs> I learned to fall in bushes I learned <laughs> I learned how to pretend to be sober in lectures I became very good at that something that needs to be developed and kind of created and that can 
still be improved through working it. It's not, it does come naturally, but through, you know, effort, I guess. Definitely. And, you know, all of us have some sort of talent and all of us have some sort of ability towards something, but it's, I think it's learning how to make the most of that and what toolkit and skill set do you need in order to accentuate that. Um, so yeah, that, yeah, that's something I definitely carried from the Welsh College of Drama, yeah. And in terms of directing, how did you first get interested in directing? Um, so I worked as an actress for years, years and years, and obviously with that comes lots of periods of being out of work. Um, as most actors do, I did loads of other jobs, but one of the jobs that I used to do was work every Saturday and Sunday at Stagecoach, um, which is a drama school. Um, and obviously when you're thrown into that, um, you have to develop your skill, directorial skills because usually as the d uh, drama teacher you're thrown in at the end of every year and you have to direct the, <coughs> the end of school show. So that's where my first um, development of that skill set came was, was through working with really young performers at Stagecoach and I'm forever grateful really for that. I really built up my skill set there. And then I had my daughter and I didn't want to tour anymore um, as an mm. actress just didn't want to be away from home as I used to be. So I worked with Welsh, Welsh National Youth Opera and I assisted them on a production called, oh God, something, something Daisy May or... Right. Here we go. I can't remember the, even remember the name of it. So I assisted, I was assistant director and just fell in love with it. And then WNO used to... Uh, have an outreach team they still have but it used, used to be called WNO Max I'm getting old now so a lot of people don't remember WNO Max run by the lovely Rian Hutchins and then Rian just gave me loads of opportunities following that I think they, they well, hopefully saw that I did a decent job and I did a few productions with them and started to develop um, my directorial practice yeah great and in terms of your process, do you have a set process that you use on everything you direct, or does it differ uh, depending on piece, or for different mediums? Because you've directed straight theatre, you've directed musical theatre, you've directed opera. Yeah, um, good question. It's difficult, isn't it, to refer on your own process mm -hmm. and exactly what you do. I'd love to have some time to do that and kind of go step by step, what do I do? Um, I think I'm very visceral in my approach. Um, I feel something. Um, I always like to think of myself as emotionally intelligent. There are very, very um, intellectual directors out there and um, I wouldn't put myself in that category. I think my intelligence comes from a much more emotional, visceral, um, awkward um, sense of what a piece could be and should be and is to the company that creates right. it. So I would say that my my process is, is very collaborative. Um, I usually have a really clear vision. When I say vision, not that I know exactly how I'm going to get from A to B, but I 
can I can kind of see the staging. Um, I can see the shape of something. Is that I just from reading the piece? You think, oh, this is how this scene is going to look on stage? Yeah, not not in um, not in a very accurate manner. Though I will I will read the whole piece and I will just get um, a visual idea of what it is of shapes. That's all mm. the only way I can describe it. Shapes and an essence of something. And then one of my first point of contacts would be my designer, and I usually work really closely with a de designer. Um, and then I think I'm quite good at explaining the essence of what I see to that designer and then that's where the kind of collaboration begins. I always, always, always look, one of the first things I do is I look for the fundamental question and that fundamental question shifts every time I read it until I come to some um, fundamental question that I'm happy to take into that rehearsal room. Do you mean the question that kind of, the one question that the piece is asking, you know? Yeah, totally. What, totally. what the piece is about, what it's trying to say, almost. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Almost, you know, like an actor would try and look for their super objective. Um, the fundamental question is my anchor. Um, and, you know, that that can change and that can change right up until week two in the rehearsal room um, but from that fundamental question is where all the ideas then that I usually have come from that I'm trying to answer that fundamental question or ask more questions which which um, which are linked to that fundamental yeah. question um, and I usually then go away and I mood board is one of the first things I do so I will get loads and loads of images just random images which come from gosh knows where um, but you know when I did Guy Lugnaud for example which was a, the first Welsh na uh, opera the WNO did which is crazy um, with them being Welsh National Opera um, <laughs> I only had 10 days to stage this opera wow. so my Pre -pre my preparation for that had to be so on point. Um, it was the same when I directed the Tullough for the Eisteddfod last year. I had seven days, I think. And we had a aerial artists and all sorts in that. So that kind of directorial work, you're, shift you're shifting your skill set and your headset more in line with how a staff director would work. Okay. So you're... you're your preparation is huge, so I have to know exactly what I want. I had to know, with the Taloyth, I mapped out literally where everybody was moving and when. So, so I ha you have to, because I've got seven days to put this whole piece together, so you have to. So what I tend, in those situations, I will put my, fra I have to put my framework together. Mm. Once that framework is down, of course, within that, then we can start to play. But you know, when when you're working to those kind of deadlines, and this this is one thing I learned when I was doing Welsh National Opera, you know, you've got a scene to do, and you've got three hours to do it, or you've got two hours to do it, and that's it. And if you don't if you don't achieve it in that time, 
you, you won't have another opportunity to get through it because that chorus, because you are working on three productions mm. at the same time, that chorus then in the next rehearsal you're going to be moving on to the other opera before coming back to you. So you learn very quickly to be quite self-reliant in, in, in those circumstances. And do you think you can get your vision across to performers in that kind of short amount of time? Is it difficult to convey your direct or your vision? Yeah, I think the bit, the biggest thing needed in those circumstances is to try and get those performers to trust you and to try and manage. It's about being able to manage the room well and managing every performer's expectation because everybody, every performer's got a different expectation of what they want from you, what they want from the process. So in those situations, you know, that, and that doesn't always happen. Although I'm finding that it, that might work. The, the older I get, I'm falling more into that kind of work where I've just got to... That, that creative process may, maybe isn't happening as much as it used to be, you know. I am finding that at the moment. Um, um, but yeah, I think it's about earning the trust of the performers. Um, and I think once they get into the, into the, into the flow, then the, the vis your vision of things can start to, yeah. to become a reality for them, you know. Getting them on board with your process, and then you can start to drive it forward. But until then, you can't implement it until everyone's. Um, it's a collective process, then. Everyone's a part of it. Completely, yeah. But you know, not all processes are like that. You know, I'm just trying to give an example of. Um, I think we've got this romantic vision sometimes of, oh yes, this is directed. <laughs> There's this collaboration that's going to happen, and oh, everything's going to be yeah, yeah. But sometimes the, that isn't the case, you know. So I think um, having a grasp of what kind of skill set you need in order to, to deal with that as well. And in terms of the difference in directing musical theatre, straight theatre, and opera, what are the different challenges? That each medium kind of provides, and is there a medium that you prefer directing? Um, I always say to my performers, I think the only difference with directing an opera or musical compared to a play is time. You have time constraints because a song lasts 76 bars, whereas a monologue can make it last 30 seconds or you can make it last five minutes but when I've got a when I've got a score in front of me um, it's going to last a specific amount of time and I've got to make my vision work within that set of that, that time frame if that makes sense yeah so I'm, I'm distracted because my phone this is my daughter this is she's got Instagram and I have Instagram okay. on my phone to check in on her all the time because buzzing 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 <laughs> that's okay yeah, sorry. <laughs> so it's time right. so you know if I if if I'm given a, um, an aria for example in an opera well an aria can go on and on and on and the character can be singing and saying the same thing over and over and over so when when you've got an aria that might last six minutes, then I'm really thinking much more in composition 
what's the shot you're thinking much more as a DOP a, a director of photography right. you think so you're thinking about what the lighting is doing what the picture is sharing and you're allowing the narrative of the music to push through that um, mm. that visual so it's not so much about content but rather about how it looks visually like what what atmosphere is that evoking that is already there for you mm. the, the music is giving you that the lyrics are giving you that all that amazing work and sometimes as a director you just need to I think step back and kind of go okay my job here is to allow that narrative to flow through the work that's already been given yeah. you know, rather than trying to sabotage what the, um, what the composer and the librettist has already produced how do I support it how do I set up this beautiful image and picture and obviously when you're dealing with opera singers as well the, the technicality of that um, and this is another thing with opera that I learned pretty sharpish is when you're directing an opera you, you are absolutely not top dog there you know the minute that conductor can, comes in that conductor is king or queen in that, um, <laughs> that space which is wonderful that that must have been a bit of a learning curve though as a director you know you expect to be the one person that everyone looks to in that room and then your authority is taken away by this conductor who comes in bit of a balance to be struck there i guess Abs yeah absolutely and again it's um, it's just working differently within different mediums isn't it but i love working in opera I, um, I haven't done it for a little while because a lot of my time has been um, dedicated to musical theatre mm. um, but I would well we'll see what happens after this lockdown but yes. I'd love to migrate a little bit more towards opera uh, I want to ask you next about the work you do in terms of directing work for younger audiences is there a different approach directorially compared to directing work for, for an adult or mainstream audience? Um, my, I actually started directing, uh, working for young audiences. I worked with Arab Gorg for a number of years and uh, Jeremy gave me a lot of opportunities there. Um, I think the, the beauty of work for young audiences is the purity of listening that you get from your audience because they will they will pick you <laughs> up on everything mm. they they genuinely listen and if they are bored you are gonna know there is nowhere to hide with theater for young audiences particularly really young audiences and that's an absolute joy I think you know they are gonna they are gonna tell you what they like by stamping their feet basically yeah um, but again, approach-wise, honestly, I, I don't think it's any different. Um, you know, you're you're serving the piece, aren't you? You're serving the, the audience that's in front of you. You are you are listening to nuances. You are you are serving that script, and I think you just need to know your audience. You know, and I think this is where participatory practice and direct directorial practice 
um, is vital. I think any director these days really should be working with their communities and in communities. They should really know what participatory practice is and looks like, um, because that's where you really challenge what your notion is of community and audiences. Mm -hmm. And I think as long as, as you're steeped in that kind of work as well, and, and God, this is just my opinion, you know. That's fine. <laughs> we're saying, you know, opinions are like our souls, everybody has <laughs> Um, but but I think if you if you really get to grips with what participatory practice actually means, I think you'll see that work pay off in your directorial practice yeah. as well. Because you understand your audience better. You know who you're creating this work for and then you know what their expectations are compared to your expectation. Um, yeah. You know, and, and why we why we create this is going to be a huge um, question coming out of this lockdown now. You know, what is the role of an artist? You know, we, we, we're all questioning it at the moment. What is the role of theatre at the moment? You yeah. Know? We see, you know, theatre isn't about our buildings. It isn't about bricks and mortars. And I think we're going to see a huge shift to hopefully, this is my hope anyway, real big shift um, with really reconnecting with our audiences, with our, not even audiences, with our communities, but that work, that work we create, and we've got a terrible thing of this in Wales, of just helicoptering to communities, we give work and then we yeah. end it there. Well, what, what's the point? Who is that serving? It's not serving anybody. It's ticking the box, you know? I Again, if I spoke about this, going back to an era where, you know, there was a TIE company in every county in Wales, where every school child had access to uh, a professional performance of TIE every year. You know, that's the dream. That should be what we're looking to go back to, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, it's the gentrification of things, isn't it, constantly, you know, here and it's what it's, it's, um, we try and gentrify everything, you know, I, mm. I remember when the, the, and again, I have an opinion, I'm not going to state it here, but, you know, when the TIE companies were forced to close, everybody knew what was going to happen. There are so many young people out there who are deeply disadvantaged, you know, the poverty in my valley is, I can't even, I've got no words to explain some of that poverty unless you've been into those communities and really understood those communities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the beauty of TIE was every single child in your community would have an opportunity to see theatre and they would make up their own minds on what yeah. theatre was. Um, and I think, it's, I think we're going to have to get back to that. I completely agree with you on that front. Um... I'd like to talk about the last five years next. Um, and what, first of all, how, what was the process of bringing it to Wales in the first place? Because am I right in saying that it's an American piece? Yeah, so it's a piece uh, written by quite a well-known composer in musical theatre, if you like musical theatre, a guy called Jason Robert Brown. Um, gosh, it's about... 15 years old now, I think, maybe older than that. And it's a two-hander, and it's based in New York. 
But shall I just talk about kind of where the idea came from? Yeah. Came about? That'd be interesting. Um, yeah. So um, I was really lucky that I received a Creative Wales Award from Arts Council of Wales. Creative Wales Award is um, you apply for a pot of money from Arts Council, which gives you some time to kind of develop your practice. It's almost like CPD for the artist. Right. So I was really interested. I was directing loads of opera at the time. And I was really interested in how my participatory practice and my directorial practices weren't crossing. Mm. You know, I would do the work in the community and then I would do my professional, whatever that means, work. And they weren't meeting in the middle. And this was really bugging me because everything I did felt really um, insincere as a director because I didn't understand anymore why I was doing it. Right. I was making good work, but I wasn't sure why and for whom and what purpose it served, really. Um, so I was really interested, because I was working with music a lot, in how I could approach music differently and how my perspectives on any work that I was creating could be challenged and how I could come at it from different guises, basically. So that's when I... I just did some research and um, I started researching deaf culture and realising that deaf, deaf culture and Welsh culture are really similar in mm. the oppression that they have um, been subjected to. So there was that and things started evolving and then I came across a guy called Mark Smith who is a choreographer um, and is deaf and Mark uses British Sign Language which is his language, but he uses that to create his choreography. Right. So his culture, because obviously being, you know, being deaf isn't just about access, it's about culture. Yeah. There's a cultural narrative that, um, that needs supporting there. And I was just really interested in, in how he was using his, his own culture to, to actually create his choreography. So we started investigating that, and through that, I... I realised, we both realised that we both love musical theatre and we started talking about Last Five Years and that's where it came from, basically. Right. So it came from a really organic place, this idea. That's, that's great to hear that it just came about kind of, you know, not naturally, but it developed in a way that it felt like, it seemed from what I'm hearing, that it felt like the perfect thing to do at the right time. You know, um, and like, how how important was it for you to put your own stamp, directorially, on the piece, considering that it has been done before, like. Yeah, I think the, the again it was coming back to that fundamental question, wasn't it? You know, and um, we had an additional R and D phase where that R and D phase for Mark and myself was how do we co-author this work? You know, how do we bring both our practices and both our cultures so that one culture isn't suffocating the other culture? Mm -hmm. That's what I was really interested in, that I wasn't just looking at this through an access lens, um, but how, how does the hearing culture not dominate the deaf culture and yeah. vice versa? So that's what the week-long investigation was about. And we just developed new method methodologies. 
methodologies that worked for us as creatives. Um, and I guess this is the challenge as a director then, is knowing when you're going to direct something, especially for um, an, an audience that you don't know enough about, which I didn't at the time, you know, I was reliant on Mark Smith and um, Sammy as well, um, and Dara Jackson, Jackson as well, Dara Jackson translated the libretto into BSL for us, mm -hmm. and SSE used SSE and visual vernacular. Right. So you become quite reliant as a director then to, to think, okay, are, are we serving the deaf community here as well? Mm. But without without being patronising, but because what was really important is that the methodology behind this was served. And establishing that maybe this is not just a piece of work for the deaf audience, this is a piece of work for everyone, but yeah. with the tools implanted within it, um, that a deaf audience will relate to and resonate with. Exactly, because the big thing for us, for Mark and me, is kind of go, we, we, this is a piece of work we would like to see mainstream audiences attend. Mm. You know, that it's not niche, that, that we're not polarising at all. I think so often, especially with disabled-led work, I think a lot of people think, oh, that's for a deaf and disabled audience, but it shouldn't be like that, you know, just because, yeah, I'll talk about myself, but just because um, I'm a disabled writer doesn't mean that my work is for a disabled audience necessarily. And I guess it's the same with the last five years. You wanted to appeal to a mainstream audience, but not kind of take the take the deaf and hearing impaired bass that you had with you in that respect. To totally, and so that absolutely, and that, that then has to that has to come through the creative process. You know, at the end of the day, I am a director who is hearing. Mark happens to be a choreographer who is deaf, so our practices will organically and automatically create a new methodology and, mm. and that's enough because we are artists I'm not here to fix anything, my job isn't to fix anyone or anything or it is quite simply to, to open up a question about a fundamental question yeah. and the fundamental question was can we call both the work where the hearing and deaf cultures literally sit side by side without one dominating the other and that's that's the investigation you know a lot a lot of it didn't work i'm sure and that's okay and a lot of it was absolutely beautiful and that's okay as well you know it's, it's all we're just creating a, a piece of work aren't we it's about playing and seeing what works and what doesn't and yeah, you know absolutely. trying things out and not everything is going to work but are you happy overall with the way the piece turned out from your point of view? Yeah, definitely, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, it's maybe it was a year and a half ago it happened. I'm trying at the moment, actually, I'm uh, speaking with MTI um, to try and get um, the royalties, not my royalties, the rights, so that I can stream it, you know. But all right. these little things, oh, God, the, you know, the little battles you, you have yeah. to have. Because at the moment, I've noticed there's not a lot of work out there for deaf audiences.
pieces. Um, and I have a piece of work here which could, you know, be shown. So I'm, yeah. I'm really battling at the moment to try and get that released. So, you know, there's legacies. You create a piece of work, but there's always a legacy to that piece of work that you hadn't even thought would exist, and that's the joy. And it brings up a question which takes it forward and makes theatres think about the kind of work they produce. What are they producing? Who are they producing it for? What audience haven't they tapped into that they could have done by producing work that that audience will identify with? Yeah. You know. Uh, you know, the whole, the whole debate and the questioning, questioning really about inclusive, inclusivity is such a huge <coughs> debate, isn't it? I don't know what, not a debate, but a conversation, you know, why, why are we still not creating this work? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. But it's, it's nobody's fault. It's the structures, no. the structures that are in place within arts organisations and within the landscape of the arts. Unfortunately, I, don't allow it to happen. You know? I think a lot of it is due to lack of access to training for deaf and disabled artists and the lack of deaf and disabled artists coming through drama schools and universities. Like there's a lot more, like me and and Steph. And people who just don't know now, there's a lot more of us coming through than there were 10 years ago. But me and Steph need that support to be able to build a career more so than hearing our non-disabled artists. Yeah, which comes, takes us right back to what we were talking about earlier, doesn't it? Is that grassroots work, you know, that work in our communities, identifying people. Um, you know, I'm a lecturer, I work with uh, Trinity St. David's down in Cardiff, and this mm. is a thing I bring up all the time with my line manager, is we have to be on the ball with this, you know. We're, we're training these these individuals to be um, artists within the musical theatre sector, but also we should be a driving force in change. We are, you know, I'm an artist, I should be driving for change. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, there was a big thing a couple of years ago where I can't remember her name, but there was an actress in Oklahoma who was a wheelchair user. Um, and that was a big thing. That was a news story. That shouldn't be a news story. That should be something that we, that is normalised. You know what I mean? But we're not at that stage yet. And, you know... We need allies like you supporting the deaf and disabled community to normalise, you know, disabled writers, disabled actors within the mainstream of the industry. Um, we've gone off on a bit of a tangent there. Um, <laughs> but it's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, but I want to talk about music, the musical theatre industry in Wales. And do you think that there's a negative or skewed perception of musical theatre? And what what steps do we need to take um, in order to start producing new musicals of our own and for people who want to do that to be given the support that they need? Yeah. Again, it's, a, it's another good question. Um, <coughs> a negative viewpoint of musical theatre. Um, 
what is musical theatre? To begin with, music theatre, musicals, musical theatre, jukebox musicals, what what is that art form? I think, um, and again, this, this is just an opinion, but I think the saturation of Broadway and commercial and West End musicals that, that we seem to pay lip service to in Wales at the moment, I think um, it, it irritates me personally. Mm. That's just my own irritation. Um, I don't need to see another um, mashup of something from Rent. I really don't need to see another one. You know what? What? What is that? Why? Why do we always seem to follow the crowd? If one group, one group is doing something, the other group has to do it as well. Why? Why are we not searching out those musicals? And there are so many Welsh musicals out there who, which could be produced. But what we get then is the audiences are not going to support it because the audiences don't tend to go to you know, regional venues to watch musicals. What they do is, and especially in working class communities, is which is, which is great because they're going and they're supporting, but mm. they will save up and they will go to Millennium Centre to see the big production of yeah. Liz or Phantom. Or, so what we continue to do is is we're, we're putting the money into the coffers of the of the billionaires again so we're not actually serving the, the the kind of system and the ecosystem and the ecology which is needed in ways in order to, to produce our own musicals you know so yeah so there has to be again it comes down to structure how we structure these things but, but there are loads of welsh musicals out there at yeah the moment, but they're in boxes they're in you know I I'm going to pause briefly. And in terms of when people think about musical theatre, they, they're going to be thinking, they're not necessarily going to be thinking about, you know, something with two actors that has been written in by two people in Slashy, you know. They, when you think about musical theatre, you expect high production value. Um, which is good, I'm not saying it's not, but I think maybe there needs to be a change of focus, a change of perception for, you know, the general public, for people who are not involved in the theatre industry, to accept new musicals more. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and this again comes back to how we create this work. You know, one of, one of the reasons I chose the last five years was um, if you were a musical theatre buff, you would have heard about it. Mm. Um, it was a two-hander, although we increased it to a four-hander. Um, and it was a piece that I could take into regional venues. And I knew it, it would sell okay in regional venues. So it felt, and I, I was doing something different with it, you know. So it felt as, as a first production for the company that it suited that. But moving forward as a company, you know, we've got... Um, musicals or Shoya Kutta, so it's um, a bilingual um, project. And now, well, you did one, didn't you, in yes. March? March? Fe February, March? I think. February, March, yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the whole point of that is that we introduce new artists to each other, artists who wouldn't have even thought mm. about um, writing for musical theatre, and we just give them a really safe space to play. So we're not, there's no expectation no. on you. 
It's just, what is my practice when I'm looking at this form? And, okay, Leeway give you certain specifics because there are certain criteria that you have to hit in order for it to be a piece of musical yeah. theatre. But what you do with that, then, is up to you in that playtime. And I think you need more projects like that. How did that project come about, first of all? How did you... It, it came about because I was developing... <laughs> I was developing a piece which went horribly wrong. Right. Um, it was an absolute failure for so many reasons. I'm not going to go into it. Um, and I came out of that so flabbergasted with how awful the process went and realised that there was... I had nobody to turn to at the time. You know, things have shifted a lot in ways now, which is great. You know, there's some great work happening with Cloyd. Gain is doing some great work at Manor. It, it doesn't feel such an isolated part at the moment. But at the time, there was nobody really encouraging this work. So I was like, well, why don't I do it? Um, and that's where it come, came about, really. And I think we've got about 30 10-minute musicals in the bag now. That's amazing. Which is, which is lovely, you know, and some of these eventually will, um, so we've got two that we're kind of <coughs> talking about at the moment. Um, three, actually, there's three little pieces that we're talking about at the moment. Obviously, things are at a standstill again mm. <laughs> because of the lockdown. But one of the things we are doing is, um, and WMC have been great, so in fresh bar, whenever the lockdown happens, September, we've got it penciled in. We're having a cabaret evening of only Welsh musical theatre. Wow. So every song you see will come from a Welsh musical theatre show. That's Welsh language and English language. Mm. And then what we've also got is something called 10 by 10, where it's like the, I don't want to say best of, I hate the, the, the word best. Who am I, who am I, we're not competing against anybody, you know, but. Kind of like a highlight thing. A highlight evening of our 10 minute musicals. So again, it's trying to, 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 to create that vibe and create that musical theatre community. Yeah. What I struggle with at the moment, though, is it happens and you get, a, you get a buzz going. And then because I'm a project-based company, you know, I, I can't keep that momentum going. So then your audiences drop again then, don't they? And they might go yeah. back to the West End models because... It's really difficult to get that momentum going. You've got to keep going, yeah. And that can often be funding dependent. And you'll have different levels of funding for projects every year, I guess. So you can't... It's not sustainable. That model is not sustainable. And I guess we need... You need more support as a company, as an artist. But, you know, there's, lo there's lots of exciting things. I, again, I don't want to say too much, but there's a, a few things that's happening, hopefully, with the IRV and with the National Eisteddfod that I'm kind of a part of, which will hopefully, in the next year or so, we see a big sea change in what happens with musical theatre in Wales. That is... The thing I wanted to ask you is, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in the industry? Maybe like they've just graduated, or what, or what advice would you give yourself then when you started? Oh, do you know the thing I always say to my students, and 
again, this isn't the negative. I just think it's a reality. I think if there's, if there's something else you think you can do, go and do that. <laughs> if this is the only thing that you, you have to do, you must do, then it is the right path for you, if that makes sense. Yeah. As in, I personally, for me, I, I can't live without my creativity. Mm. I don't care what I'm doing as long as, long as I'm creative. I, it honestly doesn't bother me what I'm doing. I'm not one of these kind of career directors or I just like creating. Um, and I think if you've got that energy um, bubbling inside of you, then this is the right industry for you. I don't know if that's advice at all, but... Um, yeah, I think if not, if you haven't got that, you're stuffed basically, you're in the wrong game. You know, if you've yeah. got passion for it. Exactly. Yeah. You can you can you can develop skills, you know, you can you can build your toolbox, but one thing you can't pretend is your passion for something mm. or your um I got you know, I can't I physically can't live without being creative. That's no. that that's fundamentally in my core, you know. So I think it would be that really. Um, yeah, I think that's good advice. People to take on board. Um, thanks for your time. It's been brilliant having you on. Best of luck for the rest of lockdown. Thank uh, you. And um, yeah, I'll be back later in the week with another episode of In Lockdown with. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown with. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.